Thank you, Rich. It's really good to be here with you and look at God's Word together for a few minutes. I want to say at the outset, it's always a privilege to get to, get to speak um, from God's Word. And you have in this church um, a, re- a really tremendous gift, and that is a pastor who is true to God's Word. And it's, it's more and more rare these days for that to be the case in churches across America. So that is a huge blessing for any church. It's probably the biggest and most important one. And it's great to see you, Rich. Good to hear about your trip. It's, a, it's actually a, a, a very good lead-in to, to the thoughts that I have to share with you. I called my mom yesterday, and I said, Mom, I think the sermon's a little short. And she said, well, don't let it be too short. So we said goodbye, and then we got here this morning. I said, hi, Mom. She said, hey, there's communion this morning. It's a good thing that the sermon's a little short. And I said, well, after I talked to you, I made it longer. So <laughs> try to talk fast. In Romans 8, if you, if you have a chance to turn to Romans 8, I'd like to read a few verses with you. Go to verse 26, please, in Romans 8. You, can, you might bookmark it because we're going to come back to it in a minute. But Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Let's stop there for a moment. Now, confronted with the choice in your life between optimism and pessimism, no one would choose pessimism, right? Except, of course, the pessimist who clearly knows, the pessimist clearly knows what's really going on, and so he, he actually feels bad even when he feels good out of a fear that he's going to feel worse when he stops this momentary experience of feeling better. 
As Charlie Brown might have put it to Lucy, Lucy, I've developed a whole new philosophy of life. From now on, I'm only going to dread one day at a time. <laughs> you know what I mean. Because life contains a fundamental choice for every one of us. It's an inescapable choice. And the choice is to give up or to keep going. My dad, William Kinneman, who many of you knew well, shared with many of us who he had a chance to get into these things with a two-part ethic for living life. Some of you will remember it. But this was a simple five-word, two-part credo for how to live life within the gospel as followers of Jesus Christ. And part one was keep going. And when Caleb, my son, who's now in eighth grade, was younger, he played Little League Baseball. And on his team was a kid who had been hit by a pitch once in the batter's box. Now, every time this kid came to bat after that, every time, as soon as the pitcher would wind up and throw the ball, this kid would fall down flat in the batter's box. And at first it was, I mean, it looked really funny. You didn't want to laugh at the little kid, but it was, it was a funny sight. The pitcher would wind up, he'd throw the pitch, and before the batter could tell where the pitch was headed, he'd fall down, drop his bat, and fall flat in the batter's box. And then, after you see it a couple of times, it goes from being funny to being very sad. And I could picture my dad, if he were there, walking over to the kid, if it was his son, and picking him up and saying, hey, buddy, come on, keep going. Face the pitch. But we're confronted with this choice every day in life, outside of Little League, whether to give up, as he did, or keep going. So here in the United States of America, think about the context of our nation and its history. And we refer in America to baseball as our national pastime. So we can all understand this, this picture from the baseball diamond that I just shared with you. Now, in a metaphorical sense, in a larger metaphorical sense, here in the United States, would we have a history today of leading the world in freedom if we fell down every time a pitch came? Well, of course not. See, our history is characterized by a very opposite way of living and way of thinking. We don't fall flat down in the batter's box when the pitch begins to travel towards us. And that's the thing, that's the characteristic that has made us different in the history of mankind. We don't give up, we move forward. We're characterized by optimism, by determination, by free and creative minds, by a can-do attitude, by a pioneering spirit, by great visions, by the energy of the entrepreneur. And it's, it's no mistake that the American spirit is of this character because it was born, the American spirit at its founding was born from a philosophy which sprang from a biblical view of the world which is at its heart, at its very essence, optimistic, not because it believes in an empty cheerleading approach to reality. It's optimistic because it's full of faith. 
And in fact, the original vision of the American way of thinking, our constitutional system, was founded not just from a way of life or, a, or a, a perspective of reality that was full of faith, but a very specific faith. And that was the, the, the Christian system of thought from the Word of God. And that's why the American spirit is what it is. That's why it has been what it has been. So see if you can remember these, these slogans from our, from our armed forces recruiting efforts. Tell me which branch of the military uses which of these slogans in its recruitment campaigns. Aim high. Correct. Yell out your answer. That was the Air Force. Be all you can be. The few, the proud. You've got 100% right so far. The next one's going to be easy because it doesn't matter what I say for the next one, but because you already know it, you already know which branch it is. But the slogan has changed. There's a new one. Whatever it takes, wherever it takes us. Those are not bad slogans for our life of faith, are they? Think about them in succession. I would, I would, I would, only, I would only question whether we'd walk around um, thinking how to make the words the proud fit. That, that, that's a little bit off, but it, it, maybe there's even a context for that. Think of, think of the opposite, though. What if, our, what if our military used the opposite of these slogans? Aim low. Be less than you can be. The many, the discouraged. Don't want to go too far, and I hope it doesn't make me do too much. It wouldn't work. It brings us to the second part of William Kinnaman's two-part life ethic. The first was keep going. The second part was don't be discouraged. Now, this is very important that you catch this. Don't be discouraged is not the same as don't get discouraged. We can't help that. We all have our moments. The word be makes a big difference because being is what makes us have a, have a position of existence in God's image. It says in God's word, in him we live and move and have our, we are human beings. And the ultimate statement of being was the one God gave to Moses from the burning bush when Moses asked God, who are you? He said, I am which is the ultimate staying of statement of being. So there's a big difference between saying don't get discouraged. That, that, that will happen. You can't help it. And don't be discouraged. Don't have a being of discouragement. It, it's contrary to having faith in Jesus Christ, to have a being of discouragement. Because if in Him we live and move and have our being in Him, then our being needs to be characterized by those things that we were just looking at. Keep going. Don't be discouraged. This is the message of the life of faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to approach what we've been called to by God with optimism, with determination. It's simply the approach required for living life in the way we all want to be able to say we lived it before God. It's illustrated really well in an excerpt from the writings of Jack London. And one of America's great optimists, President Reagan, liked to quote this excerpt. 
I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled in dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor with every atom of me in magnificent glow than a sleepy and permanent planet. As George Will tells it, when the legendary NFL quarterback Ken Stabler was asked what this credo meant, the quarterback said, throw deep. It's exactly what we're called to do as Christians. We're not called to pessimism or defeatism or any downward-looking isms. We're not called to entitlement or complaining. We're called to live like the quarterback does at that moment when he shows a picture of consummate commitment. When he drops back, sends his receivers downfield, faces the onslaught of an oncoming pass rush, and then propels the ball deep into opposition territory, not knowing if it's going to be caught or not, and not knowing if he's going to end up with his head driven into the turf a millisecond later. That picture of what happens in a, in a play during a football game could be accompanied by the playing of the refrain from the, from the famous hymn, no turning back, no turning back at that moment. You know, God's Word uses athletic metaphors very, in, in very direct ways, and so I'm going to mix them for a moment here, from, from football, from throw deep, to the world of running. Just last month in the New York City Marathon, the, the world's top marathoner, world record holder in the marathon, Haile Gabrselassie, came in as a favorite, and he has, he has run a marathon in two hours, three minutes, and 59 seconds. If you, run a mile, if you can run a mile in eight minutes, cut that in half, add about, I haven't done this on the calculator, you can figure it out later, but I think add about a minute, maybe a shade under five, and then keep that pace for 26 miles. And that's what, he, that's what he's done. And that's what the lead pack is able to do in the top marathons. So Haile Gabriel Selassie came in as a favorite, nearing the end of his career, 36 years old. And he knew that he had a problem with one of his knees, but he, he was going to run anyway and hope that it would stay under control. And he dropped out in mile 16 from the lead pack when the injury in his knee became too much. He had, to, he had to drop out of the race, and the world's best marathoner, world's, one of the world's top marathons. And in the press conference after the race, you can watch this at runnersworld.com. You'll find it under Haile Gabrselassie in the video bar, in the video menu. It's, it's an amazing four minutes to watch, because what happened was not only did he announce his retirement from competitive running, to everyone's, to everyone's stunned surprise. But he was being pressed by the reporters there to describe what had happened to his knee, when it had happened, how did it feel, did he think he could have kept going, would he change his mind about retiring there on the spot if his knee hadn't hurt him that day. They wanted him to talk about his troubles. And three times he tried to end the press conference by refusing to answer questions about his troubles. And, and three or four times in, his, in, his, in, in the best English he could muster, he made the point that 
I don't want to complain. So finally, after being pressed on, tell us more about your knee, tell us more about when it happened, tell us how it felt, he walked off. He, he left the room with these final words, it's better not to complain. And the, then the room broke into applause, and he left the room. That's hard. He did that at his low moment when his, when his own world, at which he had ruled the highest, the highest peaks, had, had, had suddenly ended. But it's hard not to complain. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to do what the quarterback does. We're called to do what Haile Gabriel Selassie did. We're called to take confidence in what we know, beyond what he did as a runner, in what we know to be true in the promises of God's word. We're called to throw deep. We're called to not complain. You know, the life of faith, I guess, doesn't come down to the biggest buildings we can build or the movements we can start or how well our name gets known. That's not what Jesus called us to. He called us to follow him in a life of faithful obedience and service and love for his people. He called us to trust. He called us to courage. He called us to action. To trust in his word. To trust in him. To have courage to live according to what it teaches us, knowing that God will use that, as we just heard in Romans 8, God will use that for our good according to God's purposes. And he's called us to action. In the book of James, we read, faith without works is dead. We don't love in word only. We need to love in deed. So we have to act out our obedience. We need trust. We need courage. We need action. Those are precisely the characteristics of the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And this, this, is, this is more than a pep talk. To keep saying, throw deep. Don't be discouraged. Keep going. It's more than a pep talk. It's not just a self-actualization exercise to maximize your personal potential. As today's scripture makes clear, and we'll look, we'll look just a further, we'll look a little further now in a minute, it's much more than that. It's a profoundly biblical approach to the daily life of discipleship. It's about the actual practice of faith. It's about knowing how and when we can say, we can do it. You know, kids, kids sometimes say very insightful things, whether we want them to or not, right? And some classic kids' movies have a way of, of, of showing us truisms and insights in really effective ways as well. And as we raise young kids, you watch, all these, you watch all these classic Disney movies over again, you sit there and say, oh, aha, yeah, I get it. I didn't hear that 30 years ago. So we watched Cinderella over and over again for a few years and memorized large parts of it. And there's a great scene when Cinderella's animal friends have become very despondent because Cinderella's dream was to go to the ball, and she wasn't going to be able to go to the ball. And that had become crystal clear to everybody that this was, this was the way it was going to be. So picture that scene, if you, can, if you can get it out of your memory, where the mice are all sitting around, and one of them says, Cinderella's not going to the ball. And they all are descending into a group depression and despair. When, when one of them says, hey, wait a minute, we can do it. And they burst into action, make the dress, pull out all the stops and stuff they need to do, and they get it to happen. Do you remember that scene? 
Walt Disney was being original when he drew Mickey Mouse. That was an original idea. But this idea, hey, wait a minute, we can do it, was not an original idea with Walt Disney. It's straight out of God's word. I want you to look at where it originated in the life of the people of Israel with me in Numbers 13. Go to Numbers 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I still do that every time I try to find one of the early books in the Bible. I still say the first five. Makes it, makes it easier. Numbers 13. We're going we're gonna to just look at, um, look at verse 26. Now, the, 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 what was happening here, the idea here is the Israelites were on the verge of entering the promised land. The promised land. So it was a sure thing. It had been promised. And 12 had to go in to check it out and to bring back a report. And those 12 included Caleb and Joshua. Here's what happened. They went into the land. They checked it out. They came back to Moses with a report. Verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. There it is. That's, uh, that's the voice of faith. It's about believing what God's Word teaches us. And no, it's not easy to stick with it in many circumstances that come our way. But we're also taught in, in the beautiful harmony and, and unity of God's Word, we're also taught what to do at that moment when it gets really tough to say, we can certainly do it. In Philippians, and if, and if you'd like to flip over to Philippians 3, please do. And if you'd like to just listen, that's fine. I'll read it to you. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. It's another, it's another picture that God's Word gives us of pushing ahead and not giving up and not being discouraged. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Are you getting the picture of what it means to throw deep? It means, it means very simply to live the life of faith. It means we don't give up. It means we don't be discouraged. Think about the marathon with me for just a minute. In the world of athletic competition, there is, one, there is one competition that perhaps is the most pure and straightforward of all, and that is racing. And maybe the most basic and elemental athletic competition in the world of racing, out of all the possible ways to come at it, 
is a foot race between people who run with a really straightforward, simple goal. Come in first, and with one other, with one other opponent, the clock, to race against the clock, and in a sense, to race against yourself. Now, we have a lot of leisure time in this stage in human history, so, so versions of races have proliferated, and ultramarathons, and ultra-Ironmans, and every conceivable urban marathon and obstacle courses, they, 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 they're, all, they're all becoming popular. But I don't think any race is as ultimate as the marathon. Because in the marathon, you, you don't do the same things you do in the ultramarathon of the Ironman on that 26.2 miles where you need to adjust your pace differently if it's part of a larger or a longer run. But when it's just the 26.2 miles, when it's the marathon, the human body is made in such a way that if you run competitively against your ability in that length, 26.2, the last two to six miles is a problem. Because physiologically, the, the body's storage of glycogen, which comes from our carbohydrate intake, gets depleted, and there needs to be a shift to fuel coming from fat burning, from protein. And it doesn't, it's not like flicking on a light switch. It's a matter of many different interactions and training and, and conditioning and, 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 and chemical optimal conditions and so on. And you've heard of the wall, and you've seen that painful to watch video at the end of a marathon where a superbly trained elite athlete is wobbling and stumbling toward the finish line. Because this is the ultimate race when it's taken on its own and, and, and when, when people run it to the limits of their abilities. So the, the legend of the marathon comes from the Battle of Marathon. And the story is one of a, a Greek messenger, Pheopides, around 490 BC. And the legend states that, that he ran from the battlefield of Marathon in Greece to Athens to announce that the Persians had been defeated in that battle. And the legend says he ran the entire distance without stopping and fully exhausted before he collapsed and died he delivered his message with the words, Rejoice, we conquer. Now, at today's marathons, a lot of the runners stand there with the Nike swoop somewhere on their shoes or on their shirt or on their badge. The Nike swoop is everywhere. Nike means overcomer. It's also Greek. Rejoice, we conquer. Overcomers. Again, this is the idea that's rooted in God's word. I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Rejoice, we conquer. We can certainly do it. To continue in the faith and not give up. To keep going and not get discouraged. To throw deep, to run the race, it comes down to continuing to believe in the promises that God has given us. Rich mentioned that when he was reflecting on his visit, you know, he, he saw that letter that he had written in, in the exuberance of the early days of his faith. And a lot of us can easily look back on those early days and remember the way we were and wish to be that way again, but don't really, don't really know how. We're kind of busy to, to get our focus clear enough to get back 
to the way we were when it was fresh and when it was new. And if you're there now, then that, you know that you're there and you want to stay there. Hebrews talks about this. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to, you don't have to go there. But if you want to go there later, it's in Hebrews 10. And if you, if you have a chance to read Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11 this week and all of Romans 8, it will, it will tie, tie together well. But God's word anticipates for us what happens to us when, when Rich, as Rich described, when we go from that, that early enthusiasm, which, which tends to tail out at some point in the busyness of our ongoing Christian life. So Hebrews puts it this way. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Rejoice, we conquer. Throw deep. It's true that this is not easy. The life of faith gets tested. Sometimes it gets tested from sources we didn't expect it to get tested from. And sometimes we find it very difficult to handle or to reconcile that situation. But the good news is God called us to persevere, but not in our own strength, right? That's exactly what one of the earliest followers of Jesus understood when he spoke the words, Lord, I believe... Help me overcome my unbelief. We are overcomers through that strength that God gives us. God himself knows that the life of faith and belief is not easy. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You'll find that in Mark 9. And here's where our confidence rests. Okay? We'll wrap it up right here. Here's where our confidence rests. In, in, this, in this truth, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Remember what we read in Romans 8 a few minutes ago? Asking the question, Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Paul explains this. If you read the entirety of Romans 8, it's explained from beginning to end. But Paul lists those seven possibilities that can challenge our faith, that can be sources of fear, that we can see as sources of separation from the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble... There's seven he, he mentions. Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And then, we didn't read this next part. His answer is a resounding no. <clears throat> Rejoice. We conquer. And Paul goes on to say it's more than that. In all these things, Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul answers the seven rhetorical possibilities, those seven sources of separation from the life of faith and the love of Christ with ten assurances, making us know that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. For I am convinced, he writes, that neither death, that's one, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The race can be won, run and won when we know that assurance that we will not be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knowing that we don't just conquer, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We don't need to shrink back, fall down in the batter's box. We can throw deep. Caleb and Joshua knew that. That's why they could say, we can certainly do it. You know those 10 assurances Paul gave? It's interesting that in Numbers 13, they had 10 reasons they couldn't go in. The people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified. The cities are very large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea. The Canaanites live near the Jordan. Ten reasons why we can't go in and believe God's promise. Ten assurances that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. There's our choice. Those ten spies said no to faith, and two said yes. They didn't throw deep. They fell flat. They got hit by a pitch once, and they wouldn't face one again. We know where we, know where we want to be in this equation, don't we? So as followers of Jesus Christ today, we have our example. In fact, we have many examples in Caleb and Joshua. You look at chapter 11 of Hebrews when you get a chance. There's a whole list there of our examples in the faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. Hebrews says all of these people were still living by faith when they died. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then there's a list of what they did through faith. And as we close, listen to this list and let's put it up against what we need to do because we'll see that we're going to be okay. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. They received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. And then, and then Hebrews chapter 11 says, only together with us will they be made perfect. We're in the same lineage of faith that the saints of Hebrew 11 were in. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing in all creation. Do we have any reason to not believe God's promises? No reasons that stand up to that. Rejoice, we conquer. Continue in the faith God gave you as a gift. Trust in Him and His Word. Have the courage to believe that His promises are real and He will guide you to their fulfillment in the way He chooses His best. And then take action to do what God's Word teaches us to do. Rejoice, we are more than conquerors. Amen.